The following presentation is from the 41st Annual Addiction Treatment Leadership Conference, presented by the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, held in Washington, D.C., May 5th through the 7th, 2019. The following is the Quality Assurance Guidebook Care Competency Training Breakout Session QA6, titled Marketing and Ethics, Marketing Transparency, Financial Remuneration, Brand Integrity, Third-Party Marketers, and NAATP Ethics Code Compliance. The panelists include Jay Crossan, Lissa Franklin, Michelle Rusk, J.D., and Peter Thomas. This is our Quality Assurance Breakout Session number six, Marketing and Ethics. You can read the rest of it on the screen. Um, what I want to say about the Q, Q, the Quality Assurance Initiative, the, the guidebook, um, that is different than the Code of Ethics. Is In some ways, the Code of Ethics is kind of what not to do. Um, but the Quality Assurance Guidebook was really set out to create a floor under which no provider should operate under. And part of it was meant to be something that if someone was starting out in this field and knew and said, hey, I want to do this the right way, that they could take that book and use it as a guideline um, to get started. And so a lot of what the, the quality assurance initiatives talk about is what you should do, um, not necessarily what you shouldn't do. But whenever you get to talking about marketing and ethics, you're going you're gonna to get a little bit of both today. So uh, I will serve a dual role. I'll uh, present for a little bit. But I'm also acting as a moderator, um, although I think this group is probably pretty self-moderating. And um, at this point, I want to introduce our panel. Uh, in addition to me, we have Lissa Franklin, uh, Southeast Florida Recovery Awareness. Lissa has worked as an ethics warrior, for lack of a better term, for quite a while. She's very passionate about it. She brings a unique perspective that I think you'll hear today. Um, we're very fortunate to have Michelle Rusk, uh, an attorney with the Federal Trade Commission, and I think all of you are going to be really interested in what's going on as a result of the Support Act and what the FTC is doing, so um, we're very honored that she came today to uh, inform us on that. And then Peter Thomas, uh, who works at the National Association, and he yeah, he, he does everything ethics, really. I mean, he does a lot of the hard work and prepares that, and without him, our committee would be lost as we go forward. So I'm really grateful to the National Association for bringing him on and the work that he's done. So we're going to start with Peter now. Thanks, Jay. And, and I want to second Jay's... Uh, acknowledgement of board members and, and the other people who came in who started this process. The, the Code of Ethics is a living document. We've spent a lot of time working on it. We recognize as we move forward that there are flaws, that there are things that we missed, places where we may have gone a little bit too far, um, and, and things that need further detail. So it's a living document, and it's been really interesting to be part of those conversations, developing it, trying to make a, a better document that serves its purpose. And with that, growing into the Quality Assurance Guidebook, um, I'm not going to read these. I, I hope that many of you, if not all, have spent some time in the app. There's a link in the app that will take you to the Quality Assurance Guidebook. This is a beta release. We're, we're really hoping that our members in, in the field at large reads this document and provides us with feedback. Um, you can email us directly at NAATP. Um, there's a link from this document to a portal where you can sign in and provide formal feedback. We really want that. 
Um, so if you haven't already, please pull this up. The, the marketing section is on page 40 to 43. I, I think we all know the problem what led us here. Um, this has been an ongoing dialogue. We've, we've seen it abate a little bit over the last year, but it's, it's ongoing. Um, there have been a lot of he headlines that damage our field, but I think more importantly, patients. We see less patient confidence in seeking treatment. That undermines our work. It, it reduces the patient population that we can serve, and it also limits people's ability to get well. And, and that's what all of us should be here trying to do. Just real quickly, looking back at what we've done for quality assurance, uh, starting in 2016 when our current team came on and Martin Ventrell is the executive director. January 1st, 2016, we initiated, initiated the ethics complaint process. Um, July 2017 uh, was when we launched the quality assurance initiative. Um, September of that year, Google restricted AdWords. January of 2018, we released NATAP, uh, NAATP Code of Ethics 2.0. Uh, we decided not to reinvite for renewal 78 facilities that were part of our membership and, and with that let go of over $100,000 in revenue. Uh, revised our complaint process, updated membership conditions, and, and formalized that in the membership application that every member... Thank you. Every member now has to acknowledge our terms and conditions when they apply for membership. And if they don't acknowledge that and agree to abide by our code of ethics, mission, vision, values, uh, that they are not eligible for membership. And by checking that, it gives us the authority, if, if we become aware of an ethics violation, to review that and remove them from membership. Um, removal from membership is not our goal. We really want to bring people back in, help educate them, reform some of the practices so that we're not undermining consumer confidence, that we're not misleading patients. Um, July of 2018, NAATP testified in front of Congress. January of this year, um, NAATP mandated accreditation as part of our membership criteria. Uh, since then, we revised our Code of Ethics again, Ethics 2.5, which Marvin talked about a little bit last night and this morning. Released our Outcomes Toolkit. And just recently, leading up to the conference, released a beta release of our uh, quality assurance guidebook. We get a lot of questions about the types of ethics complaints we receive, and this is a chart of who's filing the complaints. Uh, you'll see that about 30% are coming from patients. Uh, that's the majority of these five categories. Almost half are coming from patients or family members. So consumers are a, a main source of the complaints that we receive. Starting in January of 2018, with the revision of our code of ethics and complaint process, we formalized NAATP filing internal complaints, where we become aware of a, a concerning practice and go through the same complaint process that a third party would. And since doing that, one in five ethics complaints initiates from NAATP. Um, 2016 was the first year that we had the complaint process. 2017, we saw a 300% increase in the number of complaints we saw. And then in 2019, or 2018, a 90% increase again. So as people learn about this tool, it's increasing in demand. We're seeing a lot more complaints. I'm not sure if you can read the labels here. I think what's important is the, the big orange bar. 60.5% of complaints that we receive relate to marketing, um, more than all the others combined. We, we only accept complaints into the, the ethics committee if they fall into one of the sections of the Code of Ethics, treatment, management, facilities, and marketing. Marketing is far away the most um, complaints that we receive. Breaking that out a little bit more, 
Um, within marketing, most complaints relate to patient brokering and license misrepresentation, about 25% each. We consider patient brokering, uh, call aggregation, lead sales, the purchase or sale of phone calls. About half of marketing complaints relate to some form of unbranded or misleading marketing. This is an example recreated from a recent ethics complaint. This is not the actual screenshot that was submitted. Uh, it's a new facility that had not opened at the time the complaint was submitted to us. And the screenshot had a, it was from their testimonials page and it said, see why people just like you choose us to start their recovery. All of our reviews are submitted voluntarily without compensation by our patients and patients' family members. Some reviews may be from staff. The facility had not treated any patients, so there's no way that, that all of those reviews could be from patients. And when we reached out to them about this, they, they said, well, it says some of, some of the reviews may be from staff. Um, Maybe that's true, but is that is transparency the, the thing that they're leading with? Is the information true, current, and transparent? I, I spent quite a bit of time reading through the reviews on Google and Facebook, and in doing that, they had some professional staff reviews that were exquisite. Uh, the staff said really good things about other positions that they had and how this facility was really a pleasure to work for. And, and why not, instead of misleading, trying to present as having patients giving these five-star reviews, really highlight the staff, um, hear from our professional staff. Uh, we're excited by the upcoming opening of our new location. Check out our reviews to hear what our professional staff think about working with us. And that adds credibility during the time when there are no patient reviews. And, and people, when they're approached with this distinction, don't seem to get it. And transparency is where we're going with this. Um, there's a lot of focus on what's legal, what's not legal. And I think NAATP's focus with the Quality Assurance Guidebook and the Code of Ethics is not whether or not this is legal, whether or not your treatment program is, is giving quality services, it's are you being upfront and giving true information that's current that's not misleading consumers. This is another site that was sent to us last week. Uh, this one's a little bit more egregious. The, the website is just a single page. Uh, find an AA meeting today. On that page, there are 10 calls to action. Um, on the right side of the slide up there, you see go to meeting, work the steps, get a sponsor. Each one of those is a link. And, and every link on the page, when you click it, it immediately calls out. Whether you're on a desktop device, on your smartphone, when you click those to go to a meeting, you're calling a, a treatment center hotline. And so these are the types of things that we see and we're trying to address. And one of the changes that we made in, in the Ethics 2.5 is our members are no longer allowed to control or own these types of directory websites or call aggregation sites. Just briefly on our ethics complaint process, uh, you'll see NAATP is the bottom step here. We are not a policing authority. We don't want to be. Our goal is increasing access to quality addiction treatment services. And so before you reach out to us with the complaint, uh, we really want you to start with the treatment center. A lot of treatment centers do not understand how their practices impact their reputation, how they might impact their patients. And so reaching out to them and, and having a dialogue, not attacking but informing, in some cases has been really effective. Contacting the accrediting bodies, CAR for the Joint Commission, uh, the State Licensing Authority, filing a complaint with the Better Business Bureau, the most recent, recent addition to this list is contacting the FTC. If you go onto our, our website in the complaint form, there's a link directly to their site there. Uh, and last, filing a complaint with us. 
And, and when filing a complaint with NAATP, we really want people to give concrete examples of what they, the complainant saw. Uh, we hear a lot of conjecture, so-and-so did this, uh, a lot of pointing fingers, and, and that doesn't help us, it doesn't help the field, and that, that complaint is not enforceable. We want real information, uh, not this continued throwing stones. Uh, we, do not we do not review any complaints against non-members. You can confirm whether or not a facility is a member on our AID. If they're not listed there, they're not a member. Um, and our ultimate recourse is removal from membership. I mentioned that. That's really not our goal. We want to educate members. We want to enhance the, the services that are being provided and make marketing more transparent. Uh, thanks. I'll pass it over to Alyssa Franklin. My name is Alyssa Franklin. Um, I'm the Vice President of Southeast Florida Recovery Advocates. I'm the Assistant Executive Director of the Delray Beach Drug Task Force. I'm the Vice President of Unite for Ethics Now. I'm the Palm Beach County Sober Home Task Force, the Miami-Dade Opioid Task Force. I'm the founder of U Recovery at the University of Miami and Director of um, Alumni Relations. And I was asked to come here to share my experience um, of being in Florida and talking about where we were and how we got to where we are today. Oops, I just hit the blow up the building one. This one? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. There we go. Okay, so here's my disclaimer. I'm not law enforcement, a lawyer, or a federal agent. Being involved with the local task forces as a civilian <clears throat> does not give me any special privileges and or investigative authority. This presentation is not legal advice. Please see bullet one. This presentation is in my own words, not that of any organization I am affiliated and or involved with. This presentation is not sponsored by state, county, or city. Should anyone have any concerns or comments or general statements made about types of fraud and or patient brokering, please direct all legal matters to my attorney. And there is her email address. <laughs> It happens. <laughs> Can tile a pool. Um, okay, so my experience. Um, I'm originally, like most of you, I started as a child. Um, <laughs> just kidding. I'm originally from Iowa. Um, I was looking for help. I thought I was going to find an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting through a website. Um, it was not an Alcoholics Anonymous website. Um, and I found out I could go to treatment in Florida. Um, I didn't end up going to that treatment center, but I did end up going to Florida. And I am so grateful um, because fast forwarding, like um, South Florida treatment recovery saved my life. The South Florida Addiction Treatment Marketer that I credit my life being saved to is actually in this room, Crystal. Um, so I'm proud of it. And realistically looking at it, South Florida has one of the strongest recovery-ready communities in the country. Um, we have access to safe and supportive housing. We have access to education. All the local community colleges and universities in the South Florida area have collegiate recovery communities. We have access to employment. Um, we have access to a lot of peer support services. Um, and that's why I am so passionate about protecting it. Um, but not just South Florida, you know, the industry as a whole. Because what we do is a wonderful thing. 
there are a majority good people than there are bad people. Um, and it's something to be proud of. So where we were, um, what people think was the problem, South Florida, um, what was actually the problem, um, unscrupulous physicians. So the whole patient brokering cycle, that can all be paid for. Um, it was being paid for by fraudulent billing, the unscrupulous um, toxicology, and all of those are being submitted by a physician who's signing off on them saying they're medically necessary. So if you really want to cut this at the heels, you got to go after the physicians. Um, lack of regulations and standards within the substance use disorder treatment industry. Lack of enforcement of bullet number two, because we could put as many regulations, laws, bills, ethics codes, um, but if nobody's enforcing that, it doesn't really mean anything. Um, and language and portrayal by the media. So. It's always been portrayed as the Florida shuffle, Florida, 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 um, but it's an, it's an insurance shuffle. Like this has been a problem everywhere for a very long time. Florida started stepping up to the plate and implementing a lot of solutions and that in turn drew a lot of attention, um, especially with the amount of treatment centers that were there. Like at one point there was over 4,800 licensed in Florida. So if you take 10% of 4,800, that's gonna look like, oh my God, there's so many horrible places. Um, but like Wisconsin, where there's like, you know, like, I don't know the exact number, but say there's like 20. You know, like 10% of 20 is going to look a lot less than 10% of 4,200. Here is the, the typical cycle that we all hear about. Um, as you can see on the right-hand side, um, all of that is made possible by a licensed physician, PA, ARNP. Um, starts off as someone with substance use disorder. This is a patient brokering cycle, so obviously not a good thing. Um, then detox primary treatment, intensive outpatient, recovery residents, sustained recovery. As you can see, there's no money going towards sustained recovery, which is what we need to work towards. So what we did. Um, the Delray Beach Drug Task Force actually approached Dave Ehrenberg of the Palm Beach County Sober Home Task Force and we're like, look, this is what's going on. Can you please help us? Um, Dave is the state attorney for District 15, which is, he's really the district attorney. Um, Florida just needs to be so different all the time with everything. Um, his past, he was a senator for Florida. Um, he really got his claim to fame cracking down on the pill mills. He couldn't get anyone's attention. Then he finally got Pam Bondi's attention by saying that there were more pill mills in Florida, registered pill mills, than there were McDonald's. And that kind of got everyone's attention. Um, he's currently now helping a lot to fix the federal law, which he did with HR6, um, to promote recovery instead of relapse. Uh, the Sober Home Task Force was convened in July 2016. What they've done so far is House Bill 807, so that made patient brokering illegal, certain marketing practices. Um, it implemented further standards for recovery residences and standards for clinical care. We actually just got through, well, it passed the House and Senate. It just needs a governor's signature. But they just passed another bill, Senate Bill 990. Um, and what that'll do is further increase the penalties for patient brokering. It closed a lot of the loopholes that we didn't foresee in House Bill 807. Um, and it also gets rid of a lot of disqualifying factors for um, certified peers. They implemented the pilot project. They're implementing a recovery community organization in Palm Beach County. Um, so far they have 73 arrests and counting. 
If you have something anonymous that you would like to report that's happening in Palm Beach County, um, you can call that their lo local tip line. What we did in Delray Beach specifically, um, we have the Delray Beach Drug Task Force. It's not an investigative body. It is a 501c3 comprised of local treatment professionals, clinicians, peer advocates, businesses, um, family members. And we have a couple different initiatives throughout that. We have the first responders wellness. Um, we have community outreach. We have SUD talks. But more importantly, what we implemented was the CARES program at the Delray Beach Police Department. So it started as our, after Narcan initiative. And now what it's transitioned to is so much more. Um, we also have the recovery residence ordinance, um, which means you need to be FAR certified before getting your reasonable accommodation. And because of collaboration with all of this, um, the overdoses are down 79% in Delray Beach. So where we are now, um, like I said, with um, House Bill 807, if you look in Section H of the Quality Assurance, you'll see that a lot of it mirrors that. Um, it implemented protection for patient records. It increased the marketing prohibitions. Um, and it increased the necessary requirements to gain your uh, substance use license. Because, um, for example, like when Kenny Chapman was arrested, he had a, pro a probationary DCF license to open up within 48 hours of his first arrest. Um, so that can't happen anymore. In 2019, what we did get through, this was sent before the session closed, um, the needle exchange did expand so that you, we can do that statewide now. Um, the Good Samaritan Bill passed, uh, Senate Bill 900 passed. Um, so legislative-wise, you know, we're moving and grooving again. Community-wise, FAR has really stepped up to the plate. We have the Palm Beach County Substance Awareness Coalition, which is kind of like a mini NATAP in Palm Beach where it's self-policing. We have Rebel Recovery that helps with um, displaced residents and peer support programs. We have Delray Cares, which is that program within the Delray Beach Police Department. Um, and then we also have SEFRA, which is the organization that I'm here as, and it's a 501c4. Um, and we help a lot with the legislation. We help a lot with helping find people safe and supportive transitions out of unscrupulous um, situations. And we help them properly report because start to finish to properly report something in Florida takes like close to two and a half hours. Nationally, I think... Um, Everyone needs to get on board with NAATP. They're really setting the standard um, for everyone. Joint Commission needs to follow NAATP's lead. Um, CARF does. SAMHSA's done a lot of work with NAATP. National Anti-Model State Drug Law, as Marvin mentioned last night, they're about to roll out the skeleton bill that we've been working on for close to a year and a half. So now people will be able to implement what we've done in their own states. Um, we do have Legitscript. I do think that LegitScript needs a lot of work. Um, but I do know there's a representative from LegitScript here, and you're appreciated if you're in this room. Um, but I'd love to speak with you after. Um, <laughs> state and federal oversight. Um, the House Energy and Commerce Committee, as you probably watched, um, had a couple hearings on this, which is fantastic. Um, we have HR 6, which people have spoke about. If 
I don't know if it's hyperlinked on the app. Um, I can send you the actual PowerPoint. Um, it'll have screenshots in it, though, too. Um, but if you click it, it links directly to the bill. And then states are also individually implementing their own laws. Um, but where we still have to go. So I have a picture that says, wrong is wrong, even if everyone is doing it. Right is right, even if no one is doing it. Um, this picture was taken from 1978 newspaper. The program relies heavily on counselors who themselves have overcome drug problems. Most are in their late teens and have no formal training in drug rehabilitation. And so that was in 1978. So this isn't just a problem that's manifested itself within the last three years. Um, another strong quote from the guidebook, misleading marketing practices, regardless of intention, damage patients and undermine the credibility of the field at large. These types of practices devalue the field, undermine collaboration, harm patients, create liability for providers engaging in deceptive and misleading marketing practices. <clears throat> Fan pages, recovery wrappers, mom getters, oh my. Um, I'm not sure if many are familiar with um, like the Facebook marketing, but when Google, you couldn't advertise on Google anymore, this started to explode. So the, cover, the recovery wrapper told me to. I get people that call me often like, oh, I need to help with this, this, blah, blah. I'm like, okay. Um, so this mom calls me. And she's like, my son's being patient brokered. I'm like, okay, where is he? Well, he's at the airport. Okay, well, what airport? Well, Newark. And I was like, okay, where is he going? Well, I think Florida. Well, what do you mean you think Florida? Well, I don't know. I didn't buy his ticket. I was like, okay, um, well, who bought the ticket? Well, the recovery wrapper. And I was like, wait, what? Um, and, sh and she was correct. It was, um, it was a recovery wrapper on Facebook who's employed by a treatment center. Um, he's actually going to California, though, not Florida. Not that it matters. Um, but what matters is that people are trusting their medical and clinical care to these Facebook celebrities. Um, you know, and if you take the time, which a family in crisis is not going to take the time to, you know, vet the person um, who looks like a celebrity if they have their own, like, TV show um, on an undisclosed network um, or, <laughs> you know, they're on, like, a TV commercial, um, they're going to be like, wow, he, he was clearly vetted by this um, TV group. He must be trustworthy. Let me call him. Um, he or she, not saying anyone specific. Um, and that's a problem because this is people, this is people's medical and clinical care for a life-threatening illness, um, and it needs to be taken seriously. And these fake nonprofits, same thing. Um, a lot of these nonprofits that have um, Facebook pages, if you look on like Charity Sherlock, they're, they're, not, they're not 501c3s. You can go to the IRS website and look at them. They're not. They're actually LLCs. Um, the biggest one is the closed groups. They look like parent groups, but they're not. They're actually ran by treatment centers and treatment center marketers. A screenshot I had up here, it was even titled like a mother's blank. I don't want to give it away. Um, but it's a weird group of moms and parents here to support parents who are struggling and have addicted children reach out for hope. And you can see the admins are a treatment center and their entire outreach team. Um, mom kitters are another one which is another way people are going. So it's moms of people they have in treatment, and they're paying them to infiltrate parent support groups like Al-Anon. 
Um, and the illegitimate credentials too, um, like being a licensed interventionist or um, the new recovery coaching ones that are popping up. Um, if you're if you're an average consumer, you know that's that's deceiving because again, in a moment of crisis, you're not going to take the time to be like, oh, is this a legitimate person with legitimate credentials? Um, so as far as like self-policing, like we still need to call those people out. Optimizing patient care needs to supersede optimizing search engines. Um, Geotargeting is talked about in the new quality assurance in H1, 2, 4, and 5. Uh, so that'd be like saying somebody typing in Des Moines Addiction Treatment, which is another screenshot I had, um, and it says Des Moines Addiction Treatment, best rehab in Des Moines, and Joint Commission accredited, but you click on it and it there's palm trees, and I can tell you from experience there's no palm trees in Iowa. Um, <laughs> the misleading marketing, um, you know, saying you take adolescents, but you don't take adolescents. Clinical and medical misrepresentation, um, so saying you're a dual diagnosis program, saying you can treat someone with high acuity mental health. I mean, all of these are issues because if a person goes to a place that's not clinically and medically appropriate for them, they're more than likely not going to have a successful treatment episode, and that's going to further discourage them for, for one, taking this seriously, two, believing in themselves, or three, ever getting better. Third-party marketing companies, a lot of people are still claiming ignorance. Oh, sorry, I had no idea. I need to call my marketing company. Well, that's, that's not an excuse because you're paying them to represent you. Um, you, know, you need to take that seriously. And company reviews, Peter talked about it. But more so than not, um, if you're in this room, you're committed to doing better. And that's why I was like so stoked to come to this conference anyway, because NATAP is always my most favorite conference of the whole year, because people that come to this conference are invested and committed to doing better, to being their best, to providing their best. And it encompasses the best in the entire country. Um, so I know that if you're here, you want to do better, and you're not like any of those things that we discussed. Um, so my call to action to you is to educate people. Um, if you see something, say something. Take every opportunity as an opportunity to educate others. Um, it's not, like a lot of these things aren't meant to be like damning or even approaching someone. It's meant as a learning opportunity. I cannot tell you the amount of times that I posted statuses on Facebook about like bonus structures and people would hound me and be so mad and I'd be like, look, like I'm not accusing anyone. It's a general statement, um, but just take a look at it. And then I'll get a call a couple weeks later. Hey, you were right. We looked at it. We reevaluated things. And that's what it's all about. Because if you don't know, you can't change. But if you know, you know, you can't say you don't know. Advocate. So start a local task force in your area. If you are interested in implementing any of these state laws um, or even like a task force in your area, uh, reach out to Dave Ehrenberg. You can shoot me an email. You can call me. I'll introduce you. I'll give you his information. Dave, Al, and Justin have comprised a manual that literally it's like here. Take this and start it in your area. Because um, while we do have HR 6, it's also important for local municipalities and states to implement and enforce um, their own. Because, for instance, like this is illegal all over Florida, but Palm Beach County is the only one enforcing um, what we have. 
So as a result, they've moved to Broward and Miami and north to Martin and Port St. Lucie. Um, and empower, equip patients and their families, staff, any affiliates with the knowledge of best practices so they may pass it on to others, causing a ripple effect of education by advocating and empowering others just the same as you did to them. Well, that's kind of hard to follow, isn't it? Um, what I'm going to talk about a little bit is Section I. So we, we're talk, here talking about Section H and Section I. Section I is in many ways just referring back to the Code of Ethics. You can go to the NAATP website, get the Code of Ethics. It's really easy to find. You don't have to be a member uh, to find that. And then um, a couple of things that I just want to say real quick, just to point out, one of the questions we get a lot of times is, do you have to be a member to file a complaint with NAATP? And the answer is no. As you can see from Peter's slide, half of them came from families or patients. So um, we welcome that if you know of somebody or if somebody else uh, is, is a referent, an interventionist or whatever, and you're aware of something um, and you have some information, please pass that on. Um, so what I want to do is uh, talk about the code changes. So I'm not going to go over the whole code. We talked about the changes to 2.0 last year, so we won't go through that again, but code changes. And, and I just want to make a, two comments. A lot of what we're talking about today is just like, no duh. I mean, if, if you read Section H, it's like be transparent in your advertising. You know, promote your brand don't try to malign or steal someone else's brand. I mean, it's really kind of things that we all learned um, in kindergarten or elementary school, you know, play nice with others, be fair, be honest. Um, it's really kind of simple. And, and, and I was trying to remember that quote you had about right and wrong, and I couldn't remember it. And, um, and I can't remember it now. But what, what, it, it, what came to mind, because I'm great at misquoting things, was actually something that um, actually I now know was Becky Flood talks about it. Her dad taught her when she was little, there's never a right time to do the wrong thing. And to some degree, a lot of what we're talking about is as simple as that. You know, um, say what you do and do what you say. It is really that simple. But um, the association has found it necessary to put some of these things in writing and, and to delineate them further and further. And so that was the purpose behind 2.5 was to just, it's not um, as big of a change as 2.0. 1.0 said you can't do patient brokering. And in 2.0, we started to give specific examples of patient brokering because there were too many people that would just claim, that, well, that's kind of a gray area. So we called that out. And anyway, so... Peter talked about this a little bit, but to be a member of NATP, you have to comply with the Code of Ethics. And, um, and if you don't comply, you can't be a member. If you uh, violate that code and we become aware of it, um, then you can be removed or invited not to renew your membership because membership renewal is not a right or a guarantee. Um, it's evaluated on a yearly basis. So... Um, but furthermore, I think that we also, I want to say this, is that NAATP does not represent every single addiction treatment provider, but we offer this up free of charge to anybody that's doing addiction treatment. We, we want everybody to rise to these standards um, so that our field can um, take care of more people and that, that 
patients and their families are not uh, misdirected or misguided and can get the help that they really need. So, so the changes. Um, all of these spring from five principles of integrity, objectivity, competence, confidentiality, and professional behavior. And I mentioned the guidelines are offered for all. Um, the original code was adopted in January 2012, so we've been talking about this for a while. Uh, the ethics code had fairly substantial revision um, 2.0 in January of 2018. Um, got a lot of buzz in the industry, uh, had a lot of attention um, at the conference, and um, I, I think made a lot of people sit back and say, you know, I, I do good work, I think I'm ethical, you know, how do I, how do I, match up against this and um, you know if there was something that you're doing that you didn't think was wrong um, but it might start to look like it might be wrong I think a lot of people through self-examination change their practices I, I know that there's a lot of compensation changes that occurred with marketing people and the way they were compensated in the industry so we didn't tell people they had to do that but by, by, by calling certain things out um, people did that on their own, and so I think that's real important. There's, a, you know, we don't have the ability to write down, you know, the Encyclopedia Britannica of ethics or, or code guidelines. Um, these are still fairly broad, but um, but as we adopted it, uh, we 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 continue to refine it. So it is a standard industry practice. Um, uh, I think we've talked about it. Focuses most of it focuses on marketing accuracy and transparency. Um, I don't know of any other disease where um, people can be so easily misled by searching on the internet. Well, for, first of all, if my daughter had um, leukemia, I, I would not go to Google to find out who is my physician of choice. Um, so talk, I would talk to healthcare physicians, respect Vanderbilt University Hospital is right in my hometown. I'd call them. I'd get a second opinion. Um, I might even go visit the place, which is always good. But unfortunately, because of the stigma of our disease and people wanting to remain in the shadows and they don't talk to their clergy or legal people or their HR person at work or uh, other professionals, treatment professionals, they often don't know where to go. Um, having said that, I'll say one thing. It's not in my slide. I'm a little going off script a little bit. Sorry. Um, your alumni, if you do good work with your patients, your patients will remain in recovery and they will be your best referral source for a lifetime. Um, because that's who people will go to because you get, they know Joe who got sober at the plant five years ago. Where did you go? What did you do? Um, or they'll see someone in church and say, I know your, your son had a problem you know, can I talk to you, you know, on the side. So, um, but unfortunately, um, there, there has been a lack of transparency and accuracy in, in marketing. So anyway, the most pressing concerns, we've talked about this, are patient brokering, the predatory web practices, insurance and billing abuses, payment kickbacks, and licensing and accreditation misrepresentations. So um, there's only four of these, so I'll, I'll get through my part pretty quick, and we'll have time for questions and answers um, after Michelle speaks. But um, we adopted 2.5 in February of 2019. Um, perhaps the biggest, the biggest change is so we we made. Um, I think in 2.0 we said if you have a 
a treatment directory, it needs to clearly disclose who owns it. And so we we saw progress. We saw people abide by the um, letter of the law. And if you if you were smart enough to go look at the about or find the little eye with the circle in it, the little eyes Marvin likes to call it, you know, you could click on that and you would find out that this was actually a directory that was owned either by a treatment provider or was generating call leads. And so sitting back, we just um, recognize that there's really, if you are providing services, it is, it is it, you cannot really be an independent treatment directory. So um, code 2.5 prohibits members from owning, operating, or otherwise controlling. And, um, and, and part of that language is just because people are very clever and they, you know, come, it's not Come on Heights that owns it, it's these three different LLCs that are incorporated and, and you have to really dig to find out who's in charge or who's running something like that. Um, we expanded the, um, the prohibition of buying patient leads, which is a form of pro patient brokering um, by, you know, we were focused on the internet and so we, we kind of talked about that, but what we talk about is actually that includes phone calls. Because I don't know about you, but if you, you get up early in the morning, now you've got TV ads um, that are basically doing the same thing as some of the lead generation call directories are doing. And they don't provide treatment, and the number is not to them. And they're selling those calls um, to various people. Um, so that's prohibited uh, for NAATP members to do. And here's what I'll say. It's not only prohibited for you to sell them, it's prohibited to you to buy them. If, we, if, if people in the industry stop buying the leads, the lead aggregators will go away because they're in this for the money. And uh, when the money dries up, they will do something different. So, um, yeah, so I covered number two. Number three really gets around uh, mis misleading language in ad advertising um, and expand something. This is a good... Uh, you know, some things that we have defined as being unethical might be legal um, or might be allowed by a search engine. Um, but along the idea of being transparent in your brand, um, we say it's not okay in that little three sentence that you do in a Google AdWords to say, you know, uh, our treatment is better than Cumberland Heights. It may be, but um, it's not okay to play off other people's brands. Um, this is a different position from Google. Google lets people buy trademark brand names. But what we're saying is, is that you cannot, um, you know, you've seen the uh, looking for Cumberland Heights, call, you know, Joe's treatment center of last week at this number, you know, um, first. So we're, again, the idea is transparency. If people are looking for Cumberland Heights, let them find Cumberland Heights. If they're looking for Karen, let them find Karen. Um, if they're looking for addiction rehab in Nashville, let them look for everybody that's providing addiction rehab in Nashville. That's okay. That's fair use. Uh, the other thing is referencing locations where you don't provide services. So we used to see this a lot. People would get P.O. boxes, the old black hat marketing technique. There's a digital version of that. We're just saying that's not okay. If people are looking for treatment um, in Brentwood, Tennessee, it's not okay to have a little dot on a Google map that says that, that you're there because you rented a, a P.O. box. 
um, and you're not providing treatment. So that's, um, again, um, it's not being transparent. Let's see. Oh, reflecting the levels of cares that you're offered. So this is actually, this is a nod to South Florida. Because in 2.0, or all of Florida actually, in 2.0 we, we had the words Florida model and described behavior that had become to be known as Florida model. And we have members, good members in Florida, and they said, hey, you know, we don't like that. And uh, we listened to them, and they're right. It's not fair. Um, there's good treatment in Florida and, and other states. So let's describe the behavior. And so the behavior is it's not okay for you to have um, a sober living house and another place that's licensed for IOP and say that you're doing residential treatment. You're not. You're not licensed for residential treatment. So again, say what you do and do what you say. So if you're licensed for residential treatment, then that's okay to say. If you're licensed for detox, that's okay to say. Um, there are other ways that people just try to load their websites with, um, I think it was mentioned, adolescent, detox, horses, EMDR, all these words that people might be looking for, if you don't provide those services, don't put them on your website. That's not being transparent. So I think I covered, I think I covered number four. So, and now we've got the, the opportunity for Michelle Rusk of the FTC to talk about what um, they're, they're doing these days. And, um, you've got a lot of time, Michelle, so I talked fast, so we want to hear, don't, and then will there be time for questions and answers at the end of the session? Okay, Never something you want to tell a lawyer is they have a lot of time to talk. Um, Thank you, everybody, for being here. I, I'm really encouraged by the attendance at this session. And before I start, I really want to commend NAATP for their recent efforts to raise the bar um, for members of the industry, for, for you all, and for the industry as a whole. And I think particularly these new guidelines and their emphasis on ethical and transparent marketing and, you know, I imagine that your efforts have met with some resistance. I know that you have lost some members because of it. Um, but when addicts or their families are duped by unethical marketers, um, even the most responsible people in the industry are tainted by that. So I really hope that all of the members of this organization will get behind this effort. Um, consumer confidence in the integrity and the quality of services in this industry is good for the patients, but it's also good for your businesses. So I just want to thank you for everything that you're doing. Um, so with that, um, I wish that I had talked to Lissa about her disclaimer at the beginning because I loved it so much more than this. But <laughs> I, I, I do have to say the views I expressed today are my own. I am just a staff attorney at the Federal Trade Commission, so I'm not speaking for the commission as an agency or any individual commissioner. I don't have a lawyer's phone number for you to call because I don't have a lawyer, so please, I hope I don't get myself in trouble. Um, for those of you who aren't that familiar with the Federal Trade Commission, 
we are a small, very small, independent law enforcement agency, but we have a very broad mandate, and that is to stop deceptive and unfair acts or practices in commerce. That includes all forms of marketing, so not just TV or print or radio. It includes Facebook, social, all kinds of social media, PR, anything intended to induce someone to buy your service um, is a form of marketing. Um, and it also covers all products and services in commerce. So it's not just about addiction treatment, bring a lot of cases against dietary supplement products, food products, services of all kinds, funeral homes, um, telemarketing, um, really the whole gamut, everything. Um, but I will say that policing health fraud is a big part of our consumer protection mission um, because the stakes are so high for consumers financially but also in terms of their health. And I will say that even though I'm not speaking for the commission, the commission has been on record recently, including some of our individual commissioners, as recognizing that there really is an urgent need here for us to stop deception in the addiction treatment industry. So I'm not going to give you too much uh, legalese because it is fairly simple. Our statute in section 5 and 12 prohibits, as I said, prohibits unfair or deceptive acts in commerce and also false ads for foods, supplements, drugs, medical devices, cosmetics, things that you think of as sort of FDA products. Um, and that's, that's really it. That's the basis for what we do in this area. And um, as Jay said, it's sort of a duh. Um, there are common sense principles um, that govern here. One is that ads and other marketing have to be truthful and not misleading. Um, if you make a claim about what you're providing, you need to make sure you have adequate support for that claim before you make the claim in marketing. So if you're making a claim about success rates, you better have that data in hand beforehand. Um, and I will say also that marketers need to be aware that they are responsible not just for what they say explicitly, expressly in their ads, but for also for what their marketing communicates um, in the way of implied claims. So if a reasonable consumer could take a certain message about a certain benefit or a, a form of treatment from what you say in your advertising, that's an implied claim that you are responsible for. The test for us is, what, how, is how is a consumer interpreting your advertising? So we're looking at the net impression of everything that you say, the images in your marketing, uh, the names of your treatment products, all of that go towards what you're communicating and what you're responsible for. And remember that ads can be deceptive because of what they fail to say. So don't tell a half-truth. If there's some material piece of information that's really necessary to make your base claim accurate, you need to disclose that prominently. And Jay talked about these directories where if you click on an I or something, you eventually and do a records check of corporate records, you find out who's really behind it. That's not the way to disclose material information. It needs to be clear. It needs to be prominent. It needs to be presented in a way that consumers notice it and they understand it. 
So that was the FTC law as of last year, and then the Support Act passed in October of 2018, and there are just two pieces of that 400-plus page law um, that I want to mention today. One is um, somewhere around page 400 um, was a provision that related to the FTC, which changed our authority a little bit with respect to addiction treatment. So we now can go for civil penalties in our cases. And that's new for this industry. Before we could get penalties, once we had a company under order, and we found that they were violating the terms of that order. Now we can go in and get civil penalties in the first instance. The other thing, as I'm sure you all know, is uh, it expanded the Justice Department's ability to stop patient brokering. There are now criminal penalties for patient brokering of up to 200,000 and 10 years in prison, and there is no longer any limitation with respect to services reimbursed by federal health care. It's not like the old anti-kickback statute. So those are really two changes that give teeth to law enforcement in this area. And when I say law enforcement, I'm not just talking about the FTC because we do bring a lot of standalone cases, um, but we also have a long history of working with other federal and state enforcement agencies um, and even our, our consumer protection counterparts in other countries. Um, we will, if we in the course of investigation uncover um, conduct that is criminal, uh, we are a civil law enforcement agency, we will refer that to the Department of Justice. We work very closely with the Food and Drug Administration for health-related products and services where we share jurisdiction. We have great relationships with um, the state attorneys general, so we work with the Florida AG, for instance, care, uh, closely. Um, and we also collect in our Consumer Sentinel database information about deceptive practices, consumer injury, and we share that database with thousands of federal and state and local law enforcement authorities across the country. Um, so this is one example of uh, law enforcement coordination. This was case um, was part of an enforcement sweep a couple years ago with Justice, Department of Defense, FDA, the Postal Service, USADA, we all brought cases against deceptive um, or fraudulent supplement marketing. This was one of the FTC's cases, uh, Alimidrol. There's an example of an applied claim through the product name. Um, it was a blend of herbs and other compounds, sold for $75 for an eight ounce bottle, um, targeted opiate addicted consumers with some very dramatic testimonials about helping you get off opiates and stay off after one try. Um, people who claimed it saved their lives. Um, we um, did not find any evidence that this herbal supplement was effective in helping with uh, withdrawal symptoms. And our order, our settlement with the company allowed us to get 235,000 back to consumers who had purchased the product as part of a 1.4 million settlement. So if that got your intention, um, I want to talk a little bit about how we um, do enforcement. Um, and I, I should have put a slide in for this, but just so you know the process, 
Um, when we as staff become aware of something that we suspect is deceptive or unfair, we'll open an investigation. It is non-public at that point. We will typically issue a civil investigative demand. It's essentially a subpoena to get documents um, from the company about their marketing and related um, materials and information that we need. We often will do an investigational hearing or a deposition of the targets. And then if we decide that there is, in fact, deceptive practices going on, we will either attempt to negotiate an order or a settlement with the target, or um, we will file a complaint in federal court. Um, so who is potentially liable in an FTC case? The short answer is anybody who is actively participating in the deceptive marketing. So we bring cases against the company doing the marketing the, in the treatment center, but we also may bring a case or name the individual owner of that center or key officers of that center. If they are in control and actively participating in the deception, we want them under order so they can't go and do it under another name tomorrow. Um, we will sometimes uh, bring cases against expert or celebrity endorsers that were involved, depending on their knowledge and their role. And we will bring cases against the ad agency that worked on developing the marketing, or the PR firm, or the infomercial producer. Again, depending on what their knowledge was and what their role is. So bottom line, if you are, played a role in the deceptive marketing anywhere in that chain, you could be subject to an FTC action. Um, and the consequences can be significant. Um, our basic remedy is an injunction, which prohibits you from making the deceptive claims or engaging in the unfair practices. Um, sometimes we also require a company to engage in corrective advertising or make disclosures to correct past deception. Occasionally, in the more egregious cases, we will outright ban somebody from working in the industry um, or requiring, require them to post a bond before they do so. Um, and then we have monetary relief. Um, we will typically try to get refunds for consumers and get that money back to the consumers who were deceived. Um, we also can get disgorgement of any ill-gotten gains, the profit the company made from their deceptive practices. And as I said before, we have civil penalty authority now, and we don't have to wait till you're under order now. We can go after it in the first instance. It is 42000 per violation, which may sound like, well, that's not so bad, but each and every occurrence is a separate violation. So every time you run that deceptive ad on TV late at night, every market where you run it could potentially be a separate violation. So it can add up, and it does sometimes add up to significant penalties. Um, so here's something um, from one of our cases, and I'm sure none of you have ever even contemplated doing anything like uh, Dr. Doug and his Alcoholism Cure Foundation. Um, but this was a case we brought uh, a few years ago. Um, the, the web, this is the actual website. Uh, they were claiming a permanent cure, cure for alcoholism that was 300% better than all other alcohol abuse treatments out there. Um, they also said, oh, you can cancel at any time. We cheerfully refund your money, and we will be very careful with your privacy. We, you know, doctor-patient privilege. 
And here's Dr. Doug, and I love his team of doctors, so they didn't even bother to get two different photos for their team of doctors. Um, so that kind of made us wonder about Dr. Doug, and it turned out he is not a doctor. Um, he is now under an FTC order. He's named as a defendant in addition to his uh, company. Um, the concoctions he was prescribing as an alcoholism cure were ineffective. He had no science to back that up. And rather than cheerfully refund people's money, he actually, when people tried to cancel and get their money back, he threatened to reveal their identity um, and actually did in some cases. Um, and he also charged people's credit cards and bank accounts without telling them up to nine, up to 20000 um, this is a case where we um, went in jointly with the Florida Attorney General, um, and we actually were able to ban Dr. Doug from marketing any treatment for alcoholism, drug addiction, or any other health problem. So hopefully he's gone, um, and um, he paid 730000 in refunds. Um, I'll give you just a couple quick more examples. I don't, am I, how am I doing on time? Okay. Um, again, another product whose product name is making implied claims. Um, again, a dietary supplement uh, to withdrawal ease and recovery ease, the leader in home opiate detox since 2009. Um, the company and um, its owner, who was also named, uh, settled the challenge claims. They made unsupported claims that they're including through their product name. Um, and they falsely claimed that they had clinical studies that proved efficacy uh, when they didn't. Um, and that was a $6.6 million judgment suspended because of the company's inability to pay. But if we find out that they have assets somewhere offshore or hid something from us, then we can go back in and they'd be liable for the full amount. Um, and then the last um, enforcement activity that I'll mention that's public at this point because any investigation that's ongoing is non-public um, is an effort, with, again, with FDA. Um, last January, we issued um, 11 joint warning letters with FDA about opioid cessation products that were making unproven claims. The FTC um, issued another additional four letters for violations of the FTC Act. Um, and we gave those targets 15 days to remove the claims or FDA would be able to go in and seize product and we would bring law enforcement actions. So, you know, we do that often in an area where we're seeing a lot of problems. We'll do a sweep, we'll send out warning letters and then the follow-up will be enforcement if we can't bring people into compliance. Um, so this slide is really just echoing um, what um, Lissa talked about and Jay and gave some examples of and Peter as well. Some of, and you know you all know these probably better than we do but some of the things that will get our intention that we think are indicia of deception or, or clear evidence of deception. Hiding your identity or your affiliation. Um, Lissa talked about this with the mom you know, you, you don't have a support group on the internet that looks like this grassroots family support group and you find out it's really being run by a treatment center and they're just using it as a way to generate leads to find targets to get into their centers. 
you, you can't do that. You have to be clear about who you are and who you're affiliated with, what your connections are. Um, if you're not, that's a deceptive practice. Um, these call centers that, that you see advertised on TV that promise that they will, you call in, they will find you the perfect fit for your needs. And when you call that 800 number, you either go to a boiler room of untrained operators somewhere, or you go directly to some clinic with no, no effort to figure out what your needs are and whether they're being met by that treatment provider. Um, extreme success rates. Um, I, I don't think if anybody has found a 98% success rate in this industry, congratulations. Um, but if we see claims like that, we're um, sus suspicious. Um, claims of clinical studies proving medical breakthrough, those can be red flags. Um, suspicious expert or celebrity endorsers, Oprah endorses your treatment center, you know, that makes us, well, does she really? We ought to look into that. Um, seals or certifications from questionable organizations. Um, we are getting the sense that there are a lot of seals and initials out there that don't really mean a lot and, and there may not be anything behind them. Ads that um, don't look like ads, they look like news stories. Um, commercial sites that are um, look like there's some independent research organization when they're really just a link to the marketing side of a treatment center. Any testimonials that are sound too good to be true. And um, through this and at the end, robocalls. I know you probably all go crazy with all the robocalls these days, but if, if the treatment center is using robocalling to get the word out for their services, they're already violating the FTC law, and there's a good chance that their practices are not reputable um, beyond that. So I'm just going to finish quickly, if I have time. Um, three or four more minutes. Okay. Um, with, because I, I don't want to suggest that the only problems we see are in the treatment, addiction treatment industry, so I brought a couple other cases. Um, this is an example of an, a site that the company, the marketer for Speak Smooth, which was a liquid supplement that was supposed to help kids with autism develop normal speech, uh, did not work. But they set up a site that looked like an independent site called Apraxia Research. Apraxia is a disorder where children are not able to speak. Um, and it wasn't, it was just the company. Um, and they were linking back to their product sales. So it was not an independent research site. Um, this is the ultimate in audacity and irony, both. Um, this company um, was marketing supplements for multiple sclerosis, HIV, AIDS, cancer, reduced health work absences, health-related work absences by 97%. And they had this great seal, so they're an ethical site. And if you click to verify, you could see they are an ethical site. Um, but the site, the ethical site certification was created by the owners of the company uh, marketing the product. And I think they may be the only company that got the ethical site seal. Um, and then, you know, weight loss that could keep our agency busy, um, just that industry alone. Uh, I brought this as an example of extreme testimonials and, and how testimonials can be deceptive. So not only did Tiffany in this ad not lose 80 pounds, 
Um, she didn't do it by taking, uh, what, what's this part, Xenadrine. Um, they didn't disclose that she was paid $20,000 to appear in this ad and give this testimonial. And actually, when we looked at the study, we found that the control, the people taking placebo pills lost more than the people taking the Xenadrine. So, um, and then the fraud trifecta, um, another weight loss product, um, just some of the things that this company was doing wrong. They had banner ads that linked to what looked like a news site, but it was just a fake news site. Um, they sent millions of illegal spam mails, and they had phony celebrity endorsements, so Oprah didn't really endorse this product. And in this case, we were able to go in and, and seize the, the, freeze the company's assets and then ultimately uh, recover 10 million in cash from not just from cash but also the company and owners real estate and other assets um, to go back to consumers so I will um, end that by saying um, you know what the right thing is to do be honest be transparent all the things that you heard from Lissa from Jay from Peter and if you know somebody who's not being that way then Often a competitor is our best source of information. So you can file a complaint on our database or you can contact me. And the more concrete you can be, the more detailed you can be, the better. And I will say we will protect the source of information. Um, that is a non-public um, piece. So if you want to come to us and say, look, we know for a fact that this treatment provider is engaging in deceptive practices, we would love to hear from you. Thank you. So we have a few minutes for Q&A. It's 4.40. Our session ends at 5. Um, if you've got to be somewhere, that's fine. You can get up and go. Um, but uh, anybody have a question for anybody on the panel? One in the back. Does anybody want to take that? I can, I, I'll, right off the bat, I could say you could go visit therapists and invite them out to visit your program and show them that the good work that you're doing. Um, there's a lot of, that's traditionally how this, this, were, this industry was built on relationships initially because it was built before there was a Google. And um, so, so that's, I mean, that's a simple thing. Um, but if, and we don't ban there's no ban on all advertising. I mean, I run TV ads in Nashville 
that show Come On Heights. Um, it's expensive, but I, but I do it. I'm in Com I'm in Nashville, and I show them. They call that number. It calls my people. If we are not the appropriate facility, we refer them to somebody that would better treat that patient that we have a relationship with, and we don't we don't sell that lead. That's not why we're there. So. There are things that you can do, develop relationships with your colleagues here. Um, any other comments that people want to make? Is this on? That was on? No. I, I have a lot of different feelings about the question. I, I would echo what Jay said. There's there's no outright ban on many of these practices, and even being able to advertise in in locations outside where you operate. I, I was on social media the other day, and Utah was advertising for me to go to Utah. It, if you're showing where you are um, and what services you provide, there's nothing wrong with that. It, it's the, the deception that's a concern. And when you're suggesting that you're in Iowa, but you're actually in Florida, that's a problem. I also think that the the terminology that we use and, and the way that we look at patients is contributing to the problem. I, I think I heard you say $15,000 CPA. And last night in my hotel room as I was getting ready to go to bed, I was watching Shark Tank, and they're talking about customers buying some widget. And, and addiction, people who are suffering from substance use disorders are not a widget. And so when we're talking about cost per acquisition, I think that it's it's a little bit obscene that we're spending $15,000 to get a patient in when there are so many patients that need care that don't have access to it. And so rather than thinking, how much money do I need to spend to get a patient in, we should be focusing on how can we reshape our, our treatment model so we can be providing services to people who need it who don't currently have access. Um, I, I think that that's a larger discussion and, and not specifically about marketing, but it's part of the problem. That there's there's been this influx of money, and people are only seeing money. Um, and as long as we continue to do that, there's this big segment of people who will never get services who really need it, and we'll all be battling each other for a few people um, who have private insurance are able to pay out of pocket. So that's not really an answer to your question, but, but that's part of my view on it. Thank you. Who else? I know you got questions. We have a couple of mics going around, so if you'd raise your hand and then wait for that so everybody can hear. Got to turn it on. First of all, thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for the work that you're doing. <laughs> I had to do this at my wedding. Repeat after me. So the question was about um, patient testimonials on your website, and as a licensed clinician, you know, um, there there are other codes of ethics. Some of them apply to people's licenses too. So that that's sort of where you're coming from, and how is that okay? So I I 
could spend a whole session on consumer testimonials, um, but I will, I'll, I'll try to s say quickly, just when we're looking at testimonials, not just this industry, but anywhere that it's used, and, and this is a little separate from the ethics of disclosing someone's identity, but we expect, first of all, the experience of the testimonialist to be true. Um, sometimes they're completely just fake, they're not even real consumers. Um, we expect it to be representative of what the average consumer can expect to achieve. So weight loss is an easy example. If your product only causes a pound every couple of weeks of weight loss, don't have Tiffany say she lost 80 pounds. Um, and if it's not typical, you have to be very clear about what the typical results are. Um, so those those are. Um, am I missing anything there? Oh, and any anything that you've paid the testimonial, any connection that consumers would want to know about to evaluate that testimonial. So that's sort of apart from the identifying the patient. I mean, I think there are ways you could use testimonials, you know, first name only, that kind of thing, no picture. But um, those are the principles that we look at. Anybody want to add to that? Yeah, that, that's something that we've been seeing more of. I, it's it's an issue that the National Association has not directly approached yet. Um, we, we do have a lot of complaints that come in, and I know um, I'm not any longer, but I used to be a member of the National Association of Social Workers, and it's very, very clearly spelled out in there that I could not request a testimonial from a former patient. Um, going back to the power differential, and patients' desire to please the, the person or entity that has been helping them. Um, because treatment providers tend to be agencies rather than individuals, that, that direct relationship is a little bit distanced, but it, it's something to think about, and I think that's something that is not looked at enough. All right, thank you. This gentleman right here, or that gentleman right there, because she, she, sorry, we'll get to you next. She, she brought him the mic. Yes. Oh. Yeah. I, these, the question was about a comment, can I comment? I assume that's directed at me. Uh, for the a Department of Justice investigation on Suboxone related to what specifically? Oh, okay. Um, I don't think that there's really anything that I can say about that investigation. Um, I'm honestly not um, familiar with the specific um, allegations there. So, um, you know, our, our role is, is to police deception and how products are marketed, and I'm not sure that that case was um, about claims made as much, but I, I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't comment on it. Okay, and this this gentleman up here. We appreciate that. The better our industry carries themselves, 
the better it is for our patients and the better it is for us. <clears throat> I have an ethics question about your, your rules. <laughs> Google is a directory, and if I read your rules, literally it says to pay for the use yes. of a directory uh, to secure a patient is in violation of your rules. And so if we just start with the fact that Google is a directory, and so any advertising on Google is paying for a click because that's how they get paid. So that's a question. The statement I'd, I'd like to offer is, I, I recall your comment about leukemia. In fact, if you do research on health patients of all kinds, including cancer, leukemia, et cetera, clearly 90% of them go to the web for their information today. And in, in our business, we've done a lot of research on it, 85% of our patients find us before we find them. And the major you know, highway for them to find us is the web, and of course Google being the dominant player. So I, I guess there's a statement and some questions there. Are, are you saying that the use of Google because it's a directory is in violation of the ethics practices of NAATP? No, because a search engine is not a directory. So directory would be something appearing to be listing like SAMHSA's directory. It's not, and by the way, SAMHSA is not a very good directory. Yep. But it is a directory of people that provide treatment services. It's just not very good. It's not up to date. It's, uh, you know, it has people that you and I would not consider to be, you know, treatment providers. So there is a difference between the two. The the, the big difference in the directories are the ones that appear to be independent, but they're owned and controlled by someone for the purpose of, so there's one in Tennessee, top 10 rehabs in Tennessee. Yep. Um, I don't even know if it's out there anymore, but it was controlled by an entity that's now bankrupt. And, you know, guess what? The number one rehab in Tennessee was owned by that particular uh, organization. So that's, I think the consumer thinks that that's some sort of vetted consumer report of the 10 best rehabs in Tennessee, and so that it's the deception piece that makes that inaccurate. So anything more, the Google is not a directory? Yeah, I, I, I see your point. I, I think that there's validity to that analogy uh, beyond what Jay said. Uh, I, I think that it's confused a little bit now that we've heard news about Google opening their own treatment center, but th they are unbiased. They, they don't have an incentive to point to any specific treatment center. And when you're going through Google, the organic search results, um, they're ranked based on validity, and the ads are clearly marked as ads. So when somebody picks up the phone or, or takes the action of clicking, um, with, a, with few exceptions, the consumer knows where they're going and they're choosing to go to that place whereas many of the directories that we'd seen, uh, which led to some of these changes in the code of ethics, a consumer was making an action with the impression that they were being routed to a specific provider or a unbiased resource center, when in fact they were being routed to a treatment center. So that's the main distinction that I see. So the question though, in the statement that you made earlier, and I want to just get clarity on this, because we all want to comply, is if you are on a directory, even if it's not your directory or being held out to be an independent directory, but if you've bought space on a directory, you're saying that is in, in uh, 
uh, not in compliance with the code of ethics. Is that right? No, that's actually incorrect. If, if you are advertising on a directory, we may not love that, but if it's clearly marked as an ad, there's no violation of our code for that. The violation under Ethics 2.5 is having control over a directory type website or owning the directory website. Thank you very much. And again, thank you for your work. Okay. There's a gentleman in the back. So I'd have to argue a little bit that, that Google's unbiased because I think Google basically gets paid and shows the person that pays the most at the top of the results. And yeah, so, so that's, that's, that's one thing. I don't know if you have a statement about that before I get into my next question. So the organic search is, un, is but you're right, people pay to be on there for specific search terms, and so um, that is the business that Google is in. I would love, um, you know, I've, I've expressed indirectly that I don't like the fact that people can buy a treatment center name as a Google AdWord. I think that's unethical, um, but it is allowed by Google to do because they want Coke to buy Pepsi and they want Target to buy Walmart. So their business practices are their business practices. We don't have any control or influence over that, but organic search should, should happen organically or with a lot of good hard SEO work, right? Um, but the paid is paid and, and, and not every consumer knows knows that. And just one other thing, I was confused as to why you kind of create a blanket statement that uh, no NATAB member can purchase calls. So, I mean, sometimes when you go to Google and you, you bid on a per click, it's really a per call. So, would you allow someone to advertise on a directory on a per click or per, per CPM, but not on a, on a per call basis? Can you just clarify that? The per call basis, I think, that I was referring to is like looking for and using a, another treatment. So what we made as unethical is using another treatment center's brand name. It's permitted in Google AdWords, but if but what is not permitted is in the three-sentence thing to use another brand. It's unethical according to our code. It's not illegal. I don't know if it's a violation of FTC policy, but we've... We've stated that, um, and then for the calls, you know, the new thing is, you know, looking for Cumberland Heights, call us now. Looking for Jay Walker Lodge, call us first. Um, so we're saying that use your own brand, you know, don't use someone else's. So anyway, I thought she was agreeing with me, but she's answering her phone. <laughs> Thank you. In the back. Um, thank you so much for the. Or, yeah, you're good, Bobby. All right, thank you for the panel. I thought it was very interesting. I learned a lot of things I didn't know, and very interested in your task force work and any templates and models that we can draw from your lived and learned experience at the national level. It sounds like just a lot of good stuff came out of that work. I, I have a question for Michelle. With the FTC, I'm curious, what is your criteria when you look for actionable cases? Is it the low-hanging fruit where it's so patently obvious that they're full of crap? Or <laughs> is it the breadth of impact? Because there were some, you know, magic elixirs that reminded me of back-of-comic ads from the 1890s that are would be easy, actionable items that you could definitely win. But the more subtle cases with huge impact, what the opiate companies mm -hmm. were doing, for instance, I mean, 
I guess what I'm wondering is I'd be encouraged or heartened to know that one of the criteria for case selection is the breadth of the impact and how many people are seeing it versus how patently obvious the claims are. Because some of those cases, the diet cases I'm sure have huge impact, but some of those strike, I'm just wondering if, I'll just, I'll, I, I'm close to making a statement, I'll just make it a question. <laughs> how, do you, how, do you, how do you weigh when it's time to go and take an action? Okay, so that's an excellent question. Um, and we, there are too many potential cases out there. We do have to be very selective about our enforcement. Um, and it, it, you know, it's a mix, to be honest. So um, there might be a really egregious conduct that's pretty low-hanging fruit and a pretty easy case, and it's not going to use a lot of our resources, but it's going to send a message and so we might do that case for that reason. We tend to focus on larger national advertising campaigns and go after and, and often will leave to the state AGs or the local um, district attorneys local cases, more local, smaller targets. Um, but we do go after large and small, but we are thinking about the consumer injury. We're thinking about how many consumers were deceived. What is the, what is the nature of the injury? Is it, was it thousands of dollars per consumer and only a few consumers? Was it millions of consumers and $20? You know, it's, a, it's sort of an algorithm, and it's not written down anywhere, um, but there are a number of different things that um, might persuade us that it's worth bringing a case. Thank you very much, and I want to respect everybody. We have one late. Um, it's it's five o'clock, so I want to respect everybody's time. If you would come up and ask the panel, we'll stay here if anybody has any questions to answer that. But I want to respect everybody's time. So I appreciate everybody coming to this session, and appreciate your.